We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. Huh. Oh boy. Okay, 1 John chapter 5. It's been a little while since we've been in this book, so uh, just um, we are going to do just a very quick review, um, especially because we're actually going to be uh, finishing this letter this morning if everything goes as planned. Well, remember that the gospel, uh, the letter of First John, opens with the prologue, and I've talked about this a million times, and you guys are probably really tired of hearing me talk about it, but uh, the prologue is like an appeal. Uh, John is appealing to his audience, and we're part of that audience now. But uh, John is encouraging us to continue to, to be fed and nourished and sustained by the gospel. For the gospel to be everything to us. Uh, you as a person, uh, at the center of who you are is the gospel. So John is encouraging us to continue being sustained by the gospel. And the gospel on the slide is very simple. It's, it's who Jesus is. And it's what He did, what He accomplished for us and what it is that He actually offers to us. That's the Gospel. Those three things comprise the Gospel. That's what gives us meaning in life. It's what gives us peace. It's what sustains us through everything. And in the prologue, He also uh, encourages us to continue remaining in fellowship with God and with each other. And so this is what the prologue opens. The, the, the rest of the letter fleshes this out in greater detail. But the prologue sets the, sets the tone for what is to follow. It's very important. And then after that, uh, John moves through four key components that are always found in fellowship. You have to have all four. And we've spent a lot of time on that because it is the bulk of the letter. It moves through these four key components. Confession. Confessing your sins, following God with, by your life being basically characterized by obedience, uh, godliness rather than worldliness, and uh, you know, protecting and guarding the gospel, protecting theology, protecting it is what it is that you actually believe. So doctrine. And so we move through all four of those key components twice. And in between the two sets of the four is like an intermission. And uh, he talks about our new body and our new nature. When he talks about the new, nat the new body, remember it's talking about the return of Christ. At the, at the end of chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 3, it's talking about how uh, you know, we move through these four key components of fellowship, but then John just kind of takes a break and he says, hey, you know... Uh, the way things are right now is not the way they're going to always be. The way you are right now is not the way you're always going to be. In the future, you're going to receive a new body. And you're going to be free of this, this body of sin and death that we have. And then he moves into the new nature, but he says, but since we are here right now, we do not have to be victims to our sin nature. We do not have to answer to the world. We do not have to answer to our flesh. We have a new nature that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
And after he does this, then he returns to those four key components and he goes through them again. And then after that, we get to basically uh, pretty deep into chapter 4, about five, six verses into chapter 4. And so at the end of this letter, after he's went through these two, four key components twice, he makes two final appeals. The first final appeal is the majority of chapter 4, and it is love. Uh, that we are supposed to love God, and we're supposed to love each other. And so this was the third and final appeal for us to love one another in this letter. And the last time we were studying 1 John, this is what we looked at. The, the, the majority of chapter 4, which involves love, loving each other. So three different times John makes this appeal. And so uh, any normal person would realize that it's important to this apostle. And what is he is emphasizing to us. Uh, and today we are looking at the, the final appeal. The first, there was two closing appeals. One was to love each other. And then the final one is to, is to be assured. To have assurance of your salvation. To have assurance of your relationship with God. Because it means everything. Some Christians go through their whole life beaten up. Worrying about whether they're still saved. Worrying about whether God loves them. Whether God's mad at them. They've always got their heads ducked. And it all stems from a misunderstanding of their relationship with God. And so John closes this letter with this very important appeal. He's asking us to have confidence and assurance. Be assured. And so this is what we're going to be looking at this morning in chapter 5. Be assured. Have assurance of your salvation. Have assurance of your relationship with God. What that actually looks like. And there's a peace that comes from that. There is a, a settling. A settling of your faith. A settling of your walk. Even when you sin, you know, there's, there's peace and settling to who you are because you know in your heart your relationship. You have a proper understanding of your relationship with God. And so, as we go through chapter 5, we're going to find out that uh, the fifth chapter can easily be divided into four sections, or four blocks. And in each one of these blocks, what he does is he builds a, a miniature argument for why you and I should have assurance. And so we'll move through all four, but each time we go through a block, it, or a section here, it's going to be trying to convince you, to give you confidence in who you are in Christ. Remember, it's not positive thinking and uh, having a good attitude about yourself and all this kind of silliness. This is about recognizing who you are in Christ. It's Him that gives us meaning and success and fulfillment. This is where our truth comes from. This is where our salvation comes from. It's all about Jesus. So, as we move through these four blocks, the very first one is going to emphasize uh, um, uh, three different kinds of evidence that should be in your life um, and should be in mine. Uh, these are pieces of evidence that would be introduced in a trial. Uh, you're the only one who's going to air this out. So, Donna is going to be listening to these three pieces of evidence. And Donna is going to be asking herself, am I saved? Have I really received Christ as my Savior? Are these three pieces of evidence in my life? And this is what we're all going to be asking ourselves as we look through them. So in this very first block, there's going to be three critical pieces of evidence that God has actually saved us 
by grace through faith. And so we'll read them together. It's the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent also loves his child. This is how we know that we are God's children when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep His commands. Now His commands are not a burden because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So as we move through these three pieces of evidence, I want to remind us that what we are trying to do here is to be assured of our salvation, but not just that we're going to get to go to heaven and we don't have to go to hell. It's your relationship with God. This is very important for the believer. It, uh, it gives you confidence in your prayers, you're going to see. It gives you confidence that you have eternal life. It gives you confidence in, in uh, your relationship with Him even though you fail Him. So it's very important. So we're going to move through these three pieces of evidence. It, uh, it opens up with telling us in verse 1, and that we read verses 1 through 5. So in, in verse 1, it opens up by saying, if we believe in that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in verse 5, it says, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And it tells us that if we truly believe this, we are born of God, born again. Born into the family of God. We've become God's children. Okay? So, how do we know if this is true? Well, there's some evidence. The first one he gives us here is that we, if we love God and, and we love each other. Verse 2. We love God's children and we love God. This was what was emphasized in chapter 4. So, again, he is reminding us of something he has discussed in detail three different times in this very short letter. The very first one. Do you love other believers? Do you love God? And then the second one is also in chapter 2. It tells us that we know if we keep His commandments, if we obey them. But there's a real key there because some people will go to church and never miss a church service and always put their money in the offering plate and you know, the Pharisees, you know, they were the guys who were the greatest Christians of all time, or, you know, followers of God of all time, but they weren't at all because what was going on inside was wrong. And so he's telling us the, the key to knowing the truth about yourself and, and, and me is that if obeying God is burdensome or not. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What has to happen in order for His commands to be light? For the burden to be light? I remember when I repented, I, I looked at my sister. And I saw my sister and how she could live without all of the things that I needed to make myself happy. And she actually wanted to go to church. I, I couldn't believe it. She, she chose to go to, not just Sunday morning, but Sunday night. And then she wanted to go to church Wednesday night. I couldn't figure that out. Why would you want to do that? She wasn't going because she was trying to get to heaven or something. It was, it was her choice. She wanted to go. My sister 
wanted to pray. She wanted to read the Bible. What was so different about me and my sister? What did she have that I didn't have? man and woman get married and they have children from previous relationships. And so his kids are, when they see dad, they see their dad. But when they see this woman he's married, this is their stepmom. And they are her stepchildren. And then the mom, the woman, her kids, when they look, they see their mom. But when they looked at this man that she married, that's their stepfather, stepdad. These are his stepkids. It doesn't always happen this way, but it's possible that there is a difference in the assurance of the relationship between the stepchildren with the stepparents. It's something that has to be worked on. And sometimes there's a lot of misunderstandings. There's there's bonds that form when you have your own child and you're with your child your whole life and you raise it up. When you just walk into a person, there's a lot of mistakes that are made, misunderstandings, misinterpretations. And so we can see in the relationships that we have in America and our families that there's step relationships. It's not necessarily bad, you guys. It's just that we have to recognize that there is a lack of assurance sometimes in that relationship. And so John is really wanting us to not have that kind of a situation with God. He's the, he wants us to have full confidence in who we are with Him. And when we talk about these three pieces of evidence, what we're really talking about is the transformation of your heart. You see, the things that, that hadn't happened to me yet is I hadn't gotten on my knees and asked Jesus to come into my heart and wash away my sins and repented and said, I want to follow you from now on. I'd never done that really. I was in college. But I'll tell you what, as soon as I did, everything changed. Wild horses couldn't keep me away from church. And I just loved all the Christians. Automatically. My heart was transformed. Living for Him was not a burden. It's not a burden to now. I'm going to give you some reasons. One is because I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of His will. Because I know He loves me. That makes it easy to follow Him. It makes it easy. And sometimes, you know, when it's cold like a day like today, you don't want to get out from under the covers and come to church, you know. But you do. And when you get here, you're glad that you did. Sometimes God's burdens, uh, the love that we have for God, the love we have for each other, it lightens that burden. Um, I think of Jacob. uh, Genesis 29.20. It says, So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel... And they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Love lightens the burden. 
The burden is light because we are not afraid of God. He's not our enemy. Not anymore. And our minds do not march to the beat of the world. We aren't driven by the world like the masses are. You know, there's nothing worse than watching the Super Bowl halftime and, and uh, watching the people and just, you know, ah, ah, we are the world. And they, got, they, they have nothing, no hope. So sad. We're not like that. We don't answer to the world. And this brings up the third key piece of evidence. We love God. We love each other. We keep His commands. And when we do keep His commands, the burden is light. And finally, in this passage, it tells us that our faith has conquered the world, both positionally and daily. You know, believing in in Jesus is like escaping the atmospheric barrier. You know, uh, you you uh, you become free from something, and so you have to ask yourself: Are you friends with the world? Is the world your friend, or do you recognize that it's not? Do you recognize that the evil one is not your friend? There's something that happens when your your heart transforms, and all of a sudden, you're not part of the world anymore. You're in it, but it's no longer your friend. You don't turn to the world for your happiness. Jesus said in uh, John 16.33, He said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so in Christ, our eternal position is secure. If you want to claim something, claim your position in Christ. But it's not just positionally, the fact that you are secure in Him eternally, it's just on a, on a daily basis. You know, uh, just think about it. What we're, what we're actually concentrating on right now, just for this brief moment, is the fact that we have been delivered from being a friend with the world. Um, we have been delivered from that mindset, that connection. We've escaped the atmospheric barrier. We are free to just love God. We don't have to answer to everything the world does. And we're not driven in the same way like they are. These are three very important key pieces of evidence that are evident in a transformed heart. A heart that has been born of God. And so all of us this morning have to ask ourselves, are these three things present in our lives? In the next section... uh, and I should have gave you those. Those are the three. <laughs> so I'm kind of bad at these little slides. But that's, those are the three. Um, but in the very next section, uh, we have eternal life. And this is very important because uh, we, we know that we have eternal life because of the testimony of God. God has told us this. Um, the next section is verses 6 through 13. So let's read that. Jesus Christ, He is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that He has given us 
about his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has the life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the focus so that your assurance is that you actually have eternal life. And God has testified to you and I about this. Um, there's worded, wording here that's difficult in verse 6 and 7 where it talks about the water and the blood and the spirit. And obviously we believe in the triune Godhead. So you automatically, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, maybe he's talking about that. But uh, what he's talking about here is, is uh, we have to remember that the Gospel of John or the, the letter of 1 John is talking about Jesus, uh, the one that we have put our faith in. And so the water and the blood, the water is his baptism and the blood is the cross. And so on, at his baptism, and then again, uh, frankly, at the transfiguration, God the Father authenticated and verified and testified to his Son. And then on the cross, we saw what Jesus did. Quite a testimony, I would say. And now, beginning on the day of Pentecost, we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And so in that respect, these three are in agreement. The Holy Spirit testifies to you and I about this. It says here that we accept the testimony of men, but the testimony of God is the greatest of all. To reject that testimony is to say that it's a lie. On the slide there you can see the human hand, and then you can see the circulatory system or the nervous system. But the nervous system and the circulatory system in the picture are actually trees. What is that slide trying to tell us? You're going to find out real quick whether or not you have a transformed heart by how you understand that picture. If we have a, a painting of Picasso, and if you think about what his paintings look like, and then you, you see a painting by Van Gogh. If you are at all familiar with either one of these two artists and, and you've seen their paintings, you would know that they are very different. Very different paintings. You would not confuse Picasso for Van Gogh. You would not do that. Maybe you know these paintings well enough to know what I'm talking about. And when you see a painting by Van Gogh, you can look at ten of them, and immediately you can see that it's the same author in every single one of them, because it's the same style, the same personality, it's a reflection of this guy that painted these paintings. The same of Picasso. Now Picasso could draw the human hand beautifully, he was an incredible artist, but the paintings we're all so familiar with had a certain kind of abstract look to them. So you would, not dis, you would not mistake a Van Gogh for Picasso. God has testified to us in creation. 
He has revealed His attributes to us so that we know God exists and we know what He is like. And when we see a, a tree, how the branches are big and then they go to smaller and then even smaller. And then if you go underneath the ground, you see that root system. And we see this in plants. And then you turn around and you look at the human body and you have arteries, veins, and capillaries. Veins and the blood vessels, the circulatory system, the nervous system. It is a testimony of God. Now some people will look at that testimony and they'll call it a lie. They'll see it and they'll say, that's evolution. But you're probably like me and when you see it, you see the handiwork of an author. An amazing author who created the world. And created you and me. In the same way here in 1 John, God has testified to us about Jesus, about what Jesus has done for us, and about what Jesus has offered to us. Salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and peace that surpasses all understanding. This is the testimony of God. And when we have received that testimony, we have received eternal life. Of Jesus, we have the unimpeachable testimony of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think about it, I think this was a... There's the painting. I, that's not either one of those artists. But uh, there's the testimony of God. You have a, a little girl and, and uh, the tree. All the beautiful things of creation. The handiwork of God. If you think about it, prayer is an expression of your trust in His testimony. God wants us to be assured of our salvation. And one way we can be sure is if we have that internal evidence of a transformed heart. Where we love, where there is obedience, where we have victory over the world. Another way we know is God's testimony. Have you accepted God's testimony? How did you look at that hand? How do you see it? And in the third section we're going to look at, we find out that we have assurance of our salvation and assurance of our relationship with God because of the power of prayer. And this is in verses 14 through 17. Now this is the confidence we have before Him. Whenever we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that He hears whatever we ask. We know that we have what we have asked Him for. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't bring death, there is sin that brings death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not bring death. Well, obviously this takes a turn for the worst at verse 16, but uh, this whole section we just read has everything to do with prayer. And he opens it up with this incredible promise. He tells us that whenever we ask God anything, 
according to his will, not only does he hear us, but he answers us every time. It's an ironclad promise. Now, to ask something according to his will means that we are in fellowship with him. It is the kind of prayer that is not trying to uh, fulfill the longings of the flesh, but instead your prayer is something like, not my will, but yours be done. It's been a couple of years ago now, on Wednesday night, we had a, a Bible study on God's will. It was Andy Stanley, and I've referred to it several times. What an important point he made is that when you want to know what God's will is, the key is whether or not you're actually going to do, do whatever it is he tells you. Whatever his answer is, that's what you're wanting to do. You know, so often when we pray to God about his will, we're just going to take it in as an option. We're going to weigh it and see if it's, eh, no, not that one. You know, so if that's your attitude when you're asking him, then obviously you're not going to be told his will. Now, some things are very crystal clear in Scripture. We already know that some things are right and wrong, and so we don't even have to go to God in prayer about that. But when it comes to buying a car, getting a job, whether you're going to get your promotion, whether you need to move or sell, ask this person out on a date, these kind of things, we ask according to His will. And we know that we're in His will if we're in fellowship. If you're in fellowship with God, you're not going to ask something outside of that, are you? This is what John is talking about when he says, this is the confidence we have before Him. I respond to my children when they need something. I always will. I will always do that. If one of my children come to me with a need, if I can help them, I'm going to do it. Without question. My wife and I will go to great lengths for our children. Well, God wants us to know that that's how He feels about us. Are we to believe that God doesn't feel the same way about His own kids? This is to bring confidence it's so that when we come before Him, we can come before Him in confidence. God is not a, a genie in a lamp that we rub and He does whatever we want. It's not like that at all. And we, we don't ask things outside of His will. That's silly. This fella here, George Mueller. His name is Johann George Ferdinand Mueller. He founded the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. Um, if you think of England as a rectangle, at the very bottom of the rectangle on the right side is London. It's not all the way at the bottom, like oh, Cincinnati is in Ohio. It's not that far down at the bottom, but at the bottom of the rectangle, on the right side is London, and over on the left side would be Bristol. And so uh, this is where this orphanage was that he founded. And uh, he housed and clothed and fed and educated thousands of orphans for 40 years. And he did this without a budget, without a, a source of income. It was donations and answered prayer. If you were to look this fella up and just read anything about him at all, 
there would just be this litany of examples of him testifying to the answer of prayer, how God provided for them over and over and over again. Of prayer, he says, and, and this is again is in speaking with First John where it says, and this is the confidence that we have before him, confidence before God. And so this is something that he obviously understood. He said that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. At the age of 71, he retired. Nope. <laughs> At the age of 71, this guy went and traveled the world as a missionary for more than, for 17 more years. Let's just remind ourselves of what we're doing. Chapter 5 is about being assured of your salvation, being assured of your relationship with God. There's four key sections in this chapter. The first one we looked at was these evidences of, of salvation, the evidence of a transformed heart. And then we looked at how God has testified to us and whether we accept His testimony or not. And then here we're talking about how the believer can see prayer being answered in his life. Can you say that? And so he talks about how we are supposed to be able to approach the throne with confidence, not because of who we are or that we've been living such a great life or anything silly like that. We can approach the throne with confidence because of who we are in Christ. We have been forgiven. We have been adopted into his family. We are heirs of the inheritance. And that God is our Father now who is eager to help us. He, is, he wants us to come to Him. He wants us to ask Him. He wants us to depend on Him. And so here in verse 16, it takes a, another turn because he begins to talk about prayer and sin. And, you know, God in, in this letter, John tells us to pray for each other. But here especially to pray for another brother or sister in Christ who is in sin. Because sometimes God takes us. Sometimes God has had enough. But since you and I do not ever know when God has made that decision about a person, we pray for each other. This is the plea here in this point. It tells us that there is a sin that leads to death. Well, all sin leads to death. But here he's talking about sin in the believer's life that is punishable by death. Now, it's not talking about a specific sin. You commit this sin and that's it. Oh boy, you're done. Boom. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about how you just keep doing the same sin over and over until God's had it and He just takes you out. It's not talking about that either. You want to know why? We're all living proof. We've committed them all, and we've committed them all a whole bunch over and over again, 
And we're all still sitting here in church Sunday morning living and breathing. It's not talking about that. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If we sin, we confess our sins and He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the remedy of sin in the believer's life. But what John is talking about here is that sometimes God judges us with death. There are examples of this in the New Testament. But again, let's not lose sight. Let's remember what John is actually trying to accomplish here. He's trying to encourage us that since we love each other, we should pray for each other. Especially when we see another believer in trouble. Because we know that when we're praying for another believer, he hears us and he answers. We know that. Hang your hat on that. It's a promise. We pray because sin is a threat to the believer's life. Sin is a threat to the believer's testimony. Sin is a threat to the believer's happiness. And so when we do see uh, another believer in trouble, we should pray for them. I repented in 1983. And... I believed then, as I do now, that God told me that His grace for me had ran out. He wasn't messing around with me anymore, and I knew it. That's only something that me and him know, for sure. But I know he told me. I was playing basketball with my sister and the neighbor across the street. And boom, right there, he said, this is it. It's now or never. Without saying a word to either one of them, I walked in the house. And I got on my knees and I prayed. And so, we pray for each other. My parents were praying for me. What John is saying here is that you know you can do one thing and it can just be that's it. God says that's it. I'm not putting up with this anymore. We're not doing this anymore. You can do something over a period of time and God says, you know what, I've had enough. I have had enough. I'm calling you home. I'm tired of you destroying my my name, trashing my name. I'm tired of watching other believers pray for you and you not repent. Sometimes God does this. He's saying, I'm not saying that when you pray, I'm going to hear you and do whatever you ask when it's the sin that I've decided to judge with death. Don't pray about that. But since you don't know, you pray. This is something between God and that believer. 
But you and I, we don't know when that line's been drawn in the sand. We do not know. And so we pray. We pray for each other because we have this ironclad promise that He hears us and He answers us. He may not answer in the way you want Him to answer. He may not answer in the time. I know my parents had been praying for me for a long time, you know. But God heard him the very first time. Just like he hears your prayers the very first time. And there are many examples of this in Scripture, as you probably already know too. Here it tells us that everyone who is born of God... should have assurance. Transformed heart, God's testimony, the power of prayer. And now in this final section, He's going to close with the most powerful thing that you can ever wrap your mind around is that you are eternally secure. Once you have become a child of God, your salvation is no longer in jeopardy. Nothing you can do is going to change that. You will never not be His kid anymore. Eternal security. This is the most powerful part of this, and it's the closing section, beginning in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, it opens right off the bat here and it tells us that everyone who is born of God does not sin. Well, all we've been talking about here for the past few minutes in the section is about believers sinning. We know believers sin. He's not talking about that. Obviously, Believers are not supposed to practice sin. But here it is, uh, here it is talking about our, our new nature. It's our new nature that does not sin. It's our position in Christ that is secure. That's what he means. Look what he, that's what he means when he says, uh, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one doesn't touch him. There is a, a, uh, a security of the believer that uh, what God has started in you, He's going to complete and bring to fruition. It's a, it's a promise. And the promise is dependent upon Him, not you and not me. It's a promise. The believer is secure. We are free from the clutches of the world and the evil one. Look in verse 19. It says that Jesus has, has opened our hearts so that we can understand and know Him. It says that we are in Jesus. That's security, you guys. Uh, verse 20, we are in the true one that is in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And this letter closes with this final phrase, verse 21, which for a long time to me seems so out of place, like an afterthought. But it's not at all. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This final statement reminds us to guard the gospel because idols corrupt the truth. And he reminds us to guard ourselves 
from idols and our fellowship to guard it. Because fellowship with God should be the object of our devotion. Who you are as a person, the most important driving thing in your life should be fellowship with God. It's the most important thing in your life. Once you've accepted Christ as your Savior, after that, everything fades away. And the most important thing, the object of all of your devotion, is not idols, not the world, things that distract, things that want to tarnish the truth. The object of your heart is to be devotion and fellowship with God. Let's pray.